Hey, I'm Dan Carity, and thanks for checking out my podcast, If I'm Being Honest. Each episode, I will talk with my guests about different obstacles they have faced in life and in their careers. We will talk addiction and recovery, and ultimately, finding a good place to be. Let's get started. All right, so my guest today um, is Chris Heron. Chris, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's really cool to be uh, sitting and, and speaking with you because um, I, I just wanted to let you know, when I was in rehab uh, about a year and a half ago, I was on day three or four, you know, and still wondering <laughs> what what's my life going to look like when I get out of here and, you know, not not in a good headspace. And that's when they played your documentary for me. And that was huge. Uh, that was my my first moment in rehab where I felt like, okay, you know, he did this. He he went through everything that he went through, and he's out on the other side now. Uh, maybe it is possible for me to do that. So, gosh, it was even just thinking about it right now. It's um, it still gives me kind of chills because because uh, it was really powerful. So, uh, I, I mean. Honestly, that's why we did it, right? Like that was our sole purpose for it. And what a lot of people don't know about Unguarded is Unguarded was not the original, you know, documentary. It was, he, that developed in the last month and a half of shooting. Um, Because when John Hawk was following me and filming me, I was in the gym working with kids. He, I, I booked a couple of speaking engagements and he, and he came with me and, you know, with like a month and a half to the deadline for ESPN, he pivoted and said, I can't do the documentary the way I was doing it. I want to do it this way. So not only was it sudden for him, but it was sudden for, for me and my family, right? Like we, I went from, you know, working out with a young girl, Bella in the gym, teaching her how to play basketball and working on her self-esteem to, you know, completely opening up my life to the ESPN world. Right. And when my wife and I sat down and talked about it, um, it was strictly for people who were in treatment and, you know, when they sat down, they could watch and feel a little bit of hope. So Wow. That's, that's the mission. That's really cool to hear. You know, it's for someone like you, you, you're obviously your, your difficulties were in the public eye because of being a, Mm -hmm. you know, a big time college basketball player and an NBA player. So it was already covered a bit, but so that decision though, to go public with, with the whole other part of it, the recovery and, and where you were at that point, you know, when you made it, so that's a decision you made very quickly as opposed to over time, huh? I did. It was it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that well thought out. You know, we didn't really have and that's kind of that's kind of been the story of my recovery over the last 12 years, right? Like I never intended on speaking. That wasn't like that was never on my radar. So um, you know, Jonathan Hawk, when he pivoted and we put this documentary together, it was sudden. It was, it was, um, there was a little bit of panic to it because it wasn't my intention. Um, now I, 
you know, one of the deepest moments I've had in my recovery is sitting down with a laptop on my lap with Christopher and Samantha to the left and to the right of me watching Unguarded before it went on TV. Um, you know, like that's their, that's their life, you know, that's their world. And, you know, my wife and I, we knew, we knew that, you know, we were opening up not only my story, but our family story. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't, I I guess I didn't intend on asking this because I didn't know you were going to tell me this uh, about how Mm -hmm. this came about. So suddenly, you know, I have, I have two kids, uh, 11 and and almost nine now. And I'm, I'm obviously early on in recovery, still a year and a half in, but you know, I, I try to remind myself that just like you said, like this is their story too, you know, and, and how much I share about, my struggles and what I was going through as an alcoholic, you know, when they were, when they were babies, you Mm -hmm. know, um, you know, I I try to remind myself that there's a day is going to come where one, they listen to this stuff, but two, you know, their friends, you know, everybody that they're around, they're going to know this stuff too. So it's not just me sharing my story. It's me sharing their story, their upbringing, you know, as kids as well. Um, you know, how do you feel about that now, all these years later? Oh, it's beautiful, right? I mean, it's it's completely beautiful because I, I, I'll say this, and I say this to to parents in early recovery all the time. Um, I always get the question, like, when should I sit down and tell them, right? Like, when is there an appropriate time to kind of go over my past with my children? And I think it's it's appropriate when you share your recovery. As long as they she as long as you share your recovery with them, then share the past with them because it blends and you know they see you know what recovery and living that life and the commitment and the passion to your recovery um, is just as important as sharing your past with them. And that's that's you know if you talk to my children, my kids would say, you know, recovery is the most important part of our house. You know, because with, without it, it all, all the wheels fall off. Um, so I shared an awful lot of my recovery with them. I didn't keep any of my recovery away from them. Um, as you saw on the documentary, I give I give them my chips. You know, yep. I I have I have my recovery medallions all over the house. You know, like you could be at the you could be washing dishes at the sink, and there's one to the left on the windowsill. You know, you can go over to the coffee maker and there's an, a medallion sitting there. So, um, and it's not strategic, right? It's just, that's our life. That's our world. Yeah. And that's cool because I, I, I have found, you know, recovery, it's like, it's life skills, you know, mm-hmm. whether, whether you find yourself at some point going through, you know, addiction recovery or anything like that, there's, there's just so many skills that are important for anyone in life, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how you should live your life and and maintain your your priorities of what's around you and how you treat people around you. And, um, you know, it's, it, as I said, it's all life skills anyway. So it's it's great to share that with your kids. Absolutely. I mean, just the empathy and the awareness, right, and the education around addiction and prevention and, and mental health. Right. So, you know, I'm very fortunate and I and I. It's, it's interesting, right? Because sometimes I hesitate to say this, but if you heard me speak, I would say, 
you know, Christopher and Samantha, 23 and 21, both have yet to drink alcohol or smoke. And so as a father, I'm, I'm very grateful for that, right? So it obviously for them has resonated significantly into their world because to me, that's the toughest time, right? Like your teenage years when you're battling self-esteem and self-worth and you don't know who you really are and you're, you're kind of tethered to nothing. Right. My children were they kind of were anchored to recovery. They were anchored to kind of my story, which which kept them close. Um, you know, and, and I give a lot of that credit not to sharing the lowest moments. I give that credit to sharing the recovery with them. Yeah. And, and that's interesting. You know, do you do you find that? Because I'm, I'm still, my kids are aware. Obviously, they see a huge difference in me yeah. now. So you can't hide that, which is awesome. Mm. Um, but also, you know, they're, they're not blind. They see things, they constantly see the words recovery and sober and, you know, different stuff around the house and, you know, different books I have. And, you know, yeah. so I'm, I'm slowly sharing everything with them. But I'm also still searching, trying to find the right times to say things, um, sure. you know, because I, I don't think there's any perfect way to do it. As long as, like you said, as long as you're open about mm -hmm. it with them. Were you ever worried at a certain point that they were going to have a or should I not be worried about this, about my kids having a fear of alcohol, um, you know, or looking looking down on people maybe who do drink alcohol, but can drink it responsibly, you know, like I could not. Yeah, you know, like for my children at a very young age, I made them aware, like, and I say very young, I'm saying like 14, 15, 16, like I wanted them to be at the parties. You know, like I wanted them to build that type of muscle. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to be in social settings, but not necessarily, you know, having to drink alcohol to sit in that setting. Um, you know, and that's an extremely important kind of muscle trait behavior to build at a young age. Um, my, I, I would say this, my wife, right, Heather can go out and have a beer with her friends. Yep. So, you know, they kind of have the best of both worlds, right? They see someone who can't, and then they see someone who can. And so, I, so which makes them, you know, they're very fortunate in, to that stretch of is in, that they don't look at it with judgment. Okay. You know, they don't, it's not a judgmental thing with people who do it for them. It's really simple. They know some can and some can't. Okay. All right. I, I would love to, just for my listeners who, who may not uh, be aware of your story, if you could, you know, kind of give it to them uh, just so they can understand where you're coming from and, and how you ended yeah. up where you are today. You know, I, I, at, 18 years old, I was a McDonald's All-American, which means to the people who don't understand, I was ranked in the top 20 basketball players in America. And I was highly touted, recruited. Um, my parents were going through a divorce because of my father's alcoholism. So that played a huge part in my next decision, which was going to Boston College. I wanted to stay close. Um, at Boston College, I was introduced to cocaine for the first time. And, um, you know, I, I promised myself I would do it once. And, you know, it took 14 years to walk away from that substance. Um, 
But I'll say this to the listeners who understand addiction. Um, cocaine played this. It gave me this vulnerability. It gave me this opportunity to just kind of regurgitate everything I had in my body as far as emotions, right? And and so that's what I was so attracted to cocaine. It was those late nights where I was just completely honest, raw, transparent about everything I'm going through in life. It was a skill set that I was not given at a young age, right? And a healthy person, you know, finds a therapist to go walk into the office and talk about the stress, the pressure, the anxiety. Um, you know, I found that with cocaine. Like, people would look at me at 3 o'clock in the morning and be like, their jaws would be out because they weren't expecting that. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't expecting to, for me to get honest and emotional the way I did. So, you know, that substance there played that role in my life at a very young age, which made it extremely difficult for me to walk away from. And I eventually lost my scholarship at Boston College. I failed three three drug tests in the first couple of months, and I lost the scholarship. I then got a second opportunity to play basketball in California at Fresno State. And, you know, very ignorant and unaware, um, it travels with you, right? Like, I, I yeah. there was a, a, there truly was this part of me that said, I'm getting away from my home so therefore, I'll be healthy. Yep. And, you know, it followed me there. I had my trouble there. Um, I went to rehab while I was there. Uh, and I say this often, like, we have to change the narrative of treatment, right? We have to change the narrative of recovery. Like, you tell a 20-year-old kid that they can never drink again, like me, it was a punishment. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, you just why are you trying to punish me? Like, instead of saying like, this is gonna give you the greatest gift you'll ever feel in your life. Like, this is gonna give you a skill set that you, beyond your wildest dreams. And we don't, you know, it wasn't framed that way to me. So therefore, um, I wasn't attracted to it. I had no attraction to recovery and, you know, outside of Fresno State, get drafted into the NBA. My addiction kind of lays dormant for a year with Denver, and I'm introduced to OxyContin. And that painkiller took me on a ride that, you know, I, I did not see coming um, from taking deadly amounts of it on a daily basis to spending um, all my earnings on the substance. and. Unfortunately, that led me to a heroin addiction for six years. And, you know, um, you know, kids, family, uh, I changed the world of everybody who loved me. Um, you know, their world was different now. And they had no idea why initially. Um, but you know, the world of, of, of heroin, opiates, it's unforgiving. And it, it wants to, you know, ripple into every part of your life. And it did. Um, but at 32 years old, I had suffered multiple overdoses in my heroin addiction. And I was very close to death multiple times. 
And uh, at 32 years old, I was given a gift, and that gift was to go to treatment. And, uh, you know, Chris Mullen, Liz Mullen, um, they played that part in my life. They gave me that opportunity. Um, and at 32 years old, I was given the gift of sobriety. Um, you know, and, and, you know, people say to me all the time, like, you know, do you, if you could go back, what would you change it? Right? Like if you could go back, would you change it? And my only answer to that is, and I struggle with this answer too, because, um, I've seen the, the outcomes. Um, I often say I would take my kids out of the story. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if I had one superpower, you know, I would erase their memory and, and take them out of it because that's probably the greatest guilt that I live with in my recovery. Um, but but as, I, as I just stated, I struggle with that because, like we said in the beginning, Christopher and Samantha are different kids because of it. So would I really benefit by erasing their memory, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 weird, right? It's because uh, I go through that too. I'm like, I, I try to go back and would I change it to 20? Would I change it to 25, 30, mm -hmm. 35, all these different things. And the, and the easy thing for me to say is, yeah, I, I would change it for when my kids, you know, when my kids were born. That's what I would definitely mm -hmm. change it. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I feel like, when I have what I have with my kids now compared to what I had five years ago, they feel that difference too. Of course. You know, and I and I think they they recognize how great it is to have a dad who's who's there for them in in every way possible, as opposed to the dad who who was physically there for them. You know, mm. I was taking them to their games or showing up where I needed to show up, but but I wasn't there. I wasn't in it with them. You know? no, and, the, and the reality is alcoholism, that's that's what's really tough about alcoholism, and I see it every day. Um, alcoholism is so widely accepted, right, that it, there's, not a, there's not a lot of shame attached to alcoholism. You know, as a heroin addict, there's shame everywhere. I mean, you yeah. walk in shame on a daily basis. Um, crack cocaine, methamphetamines, like there's a lot of shame in that world. Alcoholism... Um, the shame is kind of internal, right? Like, you know what you're going through, but a lot of people don't judge it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say this, like, if I didn't get sober, I had to get sober, right? Cause I was going to die. Right. But, but, but people who struggle say the way you were struggling and, and, and I'm not, there's no judgment here, but you could have managed alcoholism maybe for 15 more years. Oh, yeah. But you would have been mediocre. You would have been a mediocre father. Yep. You know, and now recovery has allowed you to, like, just be that dad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like super dad now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, and it's, it's true. I, I always say the pandemic is kind of what took me down. Um hmm just because it, it took everything away from me. It took my work, my travel, all that kind of stuff. And, and I was just home and that there was yeah. like, there was nowhere to hide anymore. And I say straight up, I would have gone easily another 10 more years the mm. way I was going. Um, and then geez, who knows, you know, but, but luckily well, I got I mean, hit in the face with it. You know, as, as a former, you know, opiate addict, right. I, there was a part of me and alcoholic there was a part of me that had like this 
this this sick envy of COVID, right? I was like, why couldn't COVID have been there when I was struggling? You know, why, <laughs> why did I, you know, why couldn't they, why couldn't I go hide and like tell everybody you can't come see me today? Um, so, so there was that, right? I was like, and then I thought, how, what's the fallout gonna look like for people who, who have that kind of parachute like, oh, I have COVID, I can't see you for a couple weeks. Oh, you can't come over. You know, and that isolation um, was tremendous. And and I witnessed it at my wellness center. Like, you know, we're still getting people on day one who are just coming out of the COVID, uh, coming out of COVID, who, who that's where their struggle began. Yeah. Hmm. You know, for, for you... Um... I'm just I'm just trying to think back to you know you you were an incredible basketball player. Do you you were you weren't in the right frame of mind obviously when you were playing. You were you know you were already somewhere else a bit uh even in your college years. You know, did you did you have a true love for basketball or were you just awesome but you 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 weren't sure really what your life should have been about? You know, I think I had a true fear of failure, right? I think I had this, like, this burning desire not to, to, to fail. And that's, that failure, that desire not to fail kind of drove my passion in basketball. And I think I would have had that passion in anything that I did. Um, I don't think it's healthy. You know, like you, you got to you got to tap into a lot to a bunch of other areas. Um, you can't just tap into that one because, you know, I played with a certain sense of fear. Um, I, I projected oftentimes. I mean, since I was like, I don't know, 10 years old, like I would be in layup lines worried about how many points I was going to score that night and how how my family were going to respond to my performance, you know, and 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 there's a lot of kids that live that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I tell kids this all the time when I speak, you know, there's there's parents and I tell parents this. There's kids that don't want their kid, their parents at the game, yeah. but you add a whole nother layer of defense to their world as soon as you walk in the gym. Instead of five on five, it's six on five because they're playing against you too. Um, and you know, there's kids that like me, right? I knew that at a very early age, if I played well, my house would be jumping. Like I would take the corner, go down the street and every light would be on and cars would be parked in front of it. So I associated a good performance as a healthy family. Right. So that that burden was put on me at a pretty young age and I felt it and I knew it. Um, so which it took the love out of it. You know, it, it took the love out of it out of out of basketball at a very, very young age. Oh, man. Do, do you speak to, you know, I know, obviously, with all of your work that you do now, you're you're it's, it's heavily focused on on recovery, right? Addiction, yeah. recovery and all that. But do you speak to. Um, you know, aspiring athletes about what they're going through. And because what you just talked about there, it's like, God, I see, I know like the area I'm from, 
the way mm-hmm. parents push their kids to be athletes and try to excel, it's it, it can be obviously to an unhealthy level. Um, so do, do you talk to kids like that as well or parents for that oh. matter? Yeah, I mean, I was just with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, you know, I was with TCU football. I'm taking credit for both teams right now because both teams are undefeated, and I was the last speaker in their training camp to, to, to close training camp. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I do a ton. I, I do a ton in that space. Um, and, and, you know, there's athletes that I currently work with that are struggling with substance use, right? Um, they're in the very early stages. But it's it's I go from the angle of let's let's identify why, you know, I'm not going to tell you you can't or you can. I just want to identify why you're doing it. Um, And most kids, when they dig deep and look within, it's it's most of the time it's the pressure. It's the anxiety. It's the fear of, of letting people that love you down. And, you know, that's what these kids take timeouts from, um, you know, and, and, and sadly, you know, they're not given healthy timeouts. They don't, they're not taught that at a young age. And, and that's kind of where my speaking has evolved to over the years. It's, it's talking about the first day and the worst day. Like I couldn't walk into any school in this country and 99% of the kids and teachers will identify drug addiction with the most horrendous moment of someone's life and we have done a horrible job at putting the spectrum together for kids like there is there is an early stage and then there's a middle stage and then there's the end stage um and we haven't done that well you know it's like let's sit down my children and look have them watch chris heron's 30 for 30 and you know that they should get the message then. You know, he was a Celtics player who lost everything. Um, that's not the whole message. Yeah. You know, that's not the whole message. It's actually a very small part of the message. Yeah, it's, that's interesting because you also brought up before, you were talking about, you know, like about me personally, with my alcoholism, I could have yeah. kept going and yeah. I could have been mediocre. You know, but I was I was mediocre for myself. I was mm-hmm. incredibly unhappy, although I smiled at everyone. You would have thought my life was yeah, perfect, you know, but yeah, I was yeah. unhappy. I was, again, mediocre dad, less than mediocre husband, you know, mm-hmm. all of it. And so everybody was suffering around me, but they didn't even know really that they were suffering. Right. Because yeah, they, they, no one was aware of it. So it's, you know, to your point, it doesn't have to be to lose everything. It's like it's. How many people are in this just that middle stage of floating and not not realizing well, where they might end up? And that's the narrative, right? Like that's what we have to change. Like I can't stand the word rock bottom. Like I just think it's such an ugly, callous, insensitive um saying, you know, like you would not attach that word, those words to any other illness. You know, you want to say like, oh, he's got rock bottom cancer. He's got rock bottom diabetes. You know, like you you wouldn't talk that way. It's a very hard language. And that's why, you know, substance use, not substance abuse. It's changing the language over the years that will destigmatize a lot of this. And the reason I say rock bottom is because I have parents 
that walk into my center, husbands, wives, every single day, and they say, hopefully this is their bottom. Hopefully this is their bottom. And, you know, what that has done to so many people, like you just said, is it's prevented early intervention. It's, it's prevented someone going up to you and say, I don't think you're really tapping in. Like, I, 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 I kind of see you just cruising. You're kind of mediocre. Like, don't you want to, don't you want to feel a little better? Don't you want to bring up different energy? Um, and if we can intervene earlier, then, and, and we feel it's okay to intervene earlier, then you change the cost of people's lives. Yeah. And that's a lot of what you're, you're going into schools and, and talking to oh, kids yeah. about, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the schools are my favorite, right? Because I have an opportunity to talk about the first day. I have an opportunity to get kids to understand who they are on a Friday night. Like, you need to understand who you become when you walk down those steps to go into your best friend's basement. Who are you? And, and what act are you now putting on? And that's what I think that's where we failed our young younger kids is that you know, we've kind of surrendered to the fact that 15, 16, 17 year old kids are just going to get wasted. It's a, it's three years where they're just going to get blitzed. And it's like, why? You know, like, why have we, why do we accept that? You know, why, why aren't we, you know, going the other way and, and teaching them how to battle their self-worth and self-esteem and peer pressure and all these things where they don't have to get blitzed to sit in a basement with kids they've known since they were five years old. Yeah, I mean, and it's then, just, it is, it's the culture, right? It it's, is. Yeah, I, and listen, and my mom, my mom died at 50. Um, my mom never saw me sober, right? And I was her baby, right? Like, she never saw me healthy. She died, I say it all the time, my mom died with a broken heart. You know, not not only from cancer, but from a broken heart, because every time I walked in that room to hold her hand, she wasn't she was looking at a sick son. And and that's what she saw. Um, but if if I had an opportunity to sit down with my mom. One of the number one things that I would like to discuss with her is how come she never asked me why? You know, like, how come my mom didn't grab me at 15 years old and say, why? Like, why do you got to do this? You know, like, you're, you're, you're one of the best basketball players in the United States. I just watched you play in front of 4,000 people, manage that crowd, manage that pressure, manage that anxiety. Um, but you can't go out at 9 o'clock with kids you went to kindergarten with without getting completely annihilated. You know, and, and like, that's a, that's a problem. And, and not to mention the fact that from a very young age, I had this hatred for Miller Lights because I watched my dad kind of unravel our family with Miller Lights. And I listened to my mom beg him to quit drinking. Like, look what it's doing to our family. And eventually they got divorced because of Miller Lights. But I started drinking Miller Lights as a child. Like I was 13, 14 years old getting drunk on a Friday night on the beer that destroyed my whole family. 
Like that's a problem. And, and, and that's a red flag. And it's a red flag that people ignore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like because I'm 14, 15 and I'm out on a Friday night, this beer just completely kicked my childhood's ass. And now I can stand out in the woods and, and, and chug them. Like that's a problem. And what do you, what is the reaction you get? Because it's, uh, I know for me as a kid, and then as I've gotten older, you know, kids I'm, I've been around or whatever, it's almost like a rite of passage, you know? It's, it's what you get to do when you're in high school, and then even more so when you, you know, you're four years that if you go to college. Mm. When you talk to these kids uh, nowadays in high schools and, and you ask them why, what, what do you get as a response? Most from kids them? know, yeah. Most kids know that it's not a rite of passage. Most kids know that it is solely used to get through some fear, anxiety, and some self-worth and self-esteem. Like most kids know that they were afraid to talk to that boy, talk to that girl, dance at prom, have fun at homecoming. Like they used it. They use it to completely take the walls down. And that's why most kids, you know, act completely different when they're, when they're doing it. Um, because they can't get to that kid without it, which then shows us how poorly of a job we're doing on the, on the back end, on the front end of getting kids to be able to, to dance at homecoming and prom and don't plan the whole thing around it. And, you know, to have a conversation with that, that first girl, that, that, you know, you think you're in love with or the boy who you have a total crush on, like they use it, not because it's something that they're supposed to do. They do it at a time where they feel they need something to get through it. And, and don't get me wrong, again, you know, there's kids that, there's also kids that don't, right, use it for that, right? And, and most likely those kids will come out the other side. And, but there's gonna be kids that if you're not willing to ask why, and if you're not willing to peel it back a little bit, those are the things you're gonna wish you did when they're 22 years old, when they're 25 years old, when they're 30 years old. Like, because every person that comes to my center, one of the first things they talk about is when they were younger. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that's the that's the root, right? They go back to being like 12, 13, 14 years old. And it's because they never talked about it. You know, they had nobody to kind of, they didn't have the skill set to, to be able to communicate it. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's, that's the biggest thing, right? It's, it's cause my story is the same too. You know, it starts in mm-hmm. high school and I thought nothing of it, but I never said a word and it just, followed me and followed me and it grew and it grew and it got worse and it got worse until until it got out of control and then you know then when I got to to rehab and started listening to other guys talk and I was like oh shit you you felt the same way oh you felt the same way too and all of a sudden I woke up now unfortunately I was 44 years old you know but it was the first time I actually had the conversation you know Mm -hmm. what what a difference it would have made if I had that conversation earlier in life, you know, it's, and that's the, and that's the thing. Everybody that comes here 
they immediately go back to the beginning because they know they can't skip that part anymore. Like they've, they've tried to skip it, they've tried to kind of block it, but they know in order to get better, they gotta start from the beginning. They gotta talk about the kind of the root, the soul of the how all of this started. And, and you know, that's, that's the thing that I struggle with as far as speaking in schools, that, you know, wellness isn't a core class. You know, like, you know, teaching our children life skills, coping skills, emotional health and well-being, holistic practices, like all these things that we could give them at a young age, we don't. And uh, and if you look at it, kind of on a national average, I'd say every high school in America, if you're lucky, it's 500 to 1 for guidance counselors. So, so that's how much we're invested in our children that we put 500 students on the plate of one guidance counselor. I speak at schools where it's a thousand to one, you know? So it's, it's, it's not surprising. It's not surprising that these kids don't have that skill set. Are we, are we making progress? Do you see progress or? Yeah, I see, I see progress in the stigma. I see a lot of progress in the stigma, right? I think, you know, when I overdosed in 2004, I was I was shooting heroin in a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. And I had never felt an overdose. I had never felt it, so I didn't I had no idea what was coming coming. And to this day I don't really remember it. Um but I felt something which made me put it in reverse, back out and get in the drive-through. Um, and in that drive-thru, I overdosed and my body went limp and I hit this woman in front of me. Um, the headline the next day in the Boston Globe was what a shame. So, I mean, talk about shaming someone. Mm. What a shame. Like, it'd be really hard for a newspaper to get away with that headline today. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's some of the improvement, right? The language the optics, I think, you know, the young girl, the gymnast for the Olympic team, like what she did this year, that was one of the boss, biggest boss moves I've ever seen, you know, personally, to walk away from oh. millions and millions of dollars and and a life, a body of work that she's worked her whole life, sacrificed her whole life to say, you know what, I'm not prepared for this mentally and emotionally. Um, right there shows a lot of improvement. And what do you think, you know, in, I, I mean, obviously the best way to reach kids, I, mm. I want to talk about parents in a second, uh, but before we go to the parents, the, the schools themselves, you know, cause you go into these schools and you talked about the guidance counselors and do you see a difference in, in the schools, uh, like the more affluent neighborhoods compared to the inner city neighborhoods? Do you see a different a difference in different parts of the country or or are some places doing better than others i mean where where are we at in the schools with it you know i i think in private schools i think you see uh i think private schools boarding schools have much more room for this curriculum um you know i think i spoke at a public school a few weeks ago and there was this like really dimly lit room and i was like hmm 
like I've never seen a room with curtains and just a, like a candle. And and I walked in there and I said to the woman who was sitting in the room, what is this? And she's like, this is kind of the deep compression room of this school where kids can come in when they're feeling overwhelmed. And I have like lavender on and, you know, I let kids just completely um, settle. And and again, that's that's huge for yeah. kids. I yeah. mean, it's you know, I, I think every school should have something similar to that. But that being said, I also think every school should be teaching kids in elementary school. Yeah. And and like the stigma of drugs, it's like, oh, we're gonna talk to our kids about heroin in fourth grade. No. You're not gonna talk to your kids about heroin in fourth grade. You're gonna you're gonna teach your kids how to you know, manage their self-worth and their self-esteem and communicate fear and anxiety and, and depression. So they're not they're not walking around elementary school, middle school and high school with it in their gut. Um, so I think to answer your question, I think the private schools have a little more um, leeway uh, to implement this this type of, of lifestyle within the school system. Um, I think the public school has a long way to go. Um, you know, what I see is depending on the areas I speak in, you know, I speak in some parts of West Virginia where they bring third graders to listen to me speak, you know, and, and I'll never forget it. I was coming around the corner and I told this principal, like I hit the brakes and I was like, there is no way I'm walking onto that gym floor right now, speaking to those little kids on the ground. And she said, Chris, 80% of my kids are being raised by grandparents. Mm. Like these kids can tell your story. Their parents live it. So she put me in my place really quick and I proceeded to go out there and tell my story. Um, but, you know, certain areas, certain economics, demographics, um, you know, they don't want to introduce their children to my story at a young age, um, which if you listen to me speak, my the talk that I do to schools is much different than the talk I do to a community event, right? And again, that's because I I, I focus on the first day. I mm -hmm. focus on that emotion that I had, that that void that I was filling at a young age. That yeah, and I know, I mean, who knows if that would have resonated me with me when I was yeah. fourteen or fifteen? I don't know, um, but I mean, I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. Exactly. Just the, the thought of somebody talking about their feelings was just non-existent to me at that point. Well, I think what really hits with kids, right? And it, and it hit with me. I was in, I was in an AA meeting, and a guy said to me, "If you were a kid, would you look up to you?" And as I'm sitting there, like three years sober, I'm like, "Man, this guy just hit me with this. Like, if I were a kid, would I look up to me?" You know, and it really kind of pokes at your self-worth and self-esteem and where you're at emotionally. Um, so because he asked me that, and it really, and, and I tend to ask myself that every day, you know, I mean, it's something that I will never let go of that. Um, I flip that and I have kids think about what they're doing at 15, 16, and 17 and I say, now envision your little brother doing it. Envision your sister doing it. Envision your little sister coming home after school and getting a razor blade and cutting her skin for self-harm. Like, how does that sit with you? How does it sit with you that 
your little brother is jump taking your parents' money and waiting in a parking lot for some guy to buy him drugs. Like most teenagers, when they switch spots, when they put their little sister or their little brother, they they don't accept it. Mm-hmm. You know, they they don't look at it and say, "Yeah, that's cool." You know, like that's no big deal. So it's just for me, I don't go in there thinking that I'm going to change everybody, right? But I go in there hoping that one kid is going to say, you know, he he's probably right. I could feel better than this. You know, like <laughs> maybe the kids I'm hanging out with, maybe they're not the best for me. You know, I've compromised. I've taken a lot of risk in the last year and a half. And that's the problem. I think for kids, it's hard for them to see because they're used to their parents saying, oh, Uncle Jimmy, look at his life. Uncle, uh, Auntie Pat, look at her life. Look how bad it is. Well, why don't you talk about Uncle Jimmy when he was 12? Why don't you, like, sit down and talk about Uncle Jimmy playing basketball and baseball and Auntie Pat, you know, playing soccer? Like, paint the whole picture for kids. But, you know, it's safe for parents because if we disclose and open up the the spectrum of it, um, they're involved. You know, like, they're involved in the beginning. And they got to look at that because a lot of kids will look at a mom and dad and say, you know what? I don't even like when you come to my games. I don't even like how you act in the car on, on the way home from games. I don't like the pressure you're putting on me in, you know, for college. Um, you know, when you talk about the first day, you're, 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 you got to bring the, you got to bring the parents into the story. Let's do that. Let's totally because you, when I when I saw you speak, um, I guess it's got to be about five or six months ago now. Um, mm-hmm. But I came to see you speak at a, at a high school nearby here, mm-hmm. and you came out and you were disgusted. Um, now mm-hmm. I w- I was there in the evening portion when you were supposed to be speaking sure. to the parents, and you had said what a wonderful day you had, you know, speaking to the kids at the school, and what an overwhelming response. And how many emails your uh, foundation received immediately mm-hmm. after from all the kids. And if there were 40 parents there in the auditorium that night to listen to you, that that's it. Yeah. You know, now it's easy for me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a recovering addict. So, of course, I'm coming in there to listen to you, you know. But when there's that many kids reaching out to you over email after you speak and there's oh, only God. 40 parents in the auditorium. It's embarrassing. Well, there's there's a disconnect, obviously. Of course. Right? Yeah, there's a huge disconnect because it's a reactive topic, right? Like a parent, if if one of those parents had a child struggling the way some of the kids in my center right now are struggling, they would have they would have been like the Cameron crazies. They would sleep outside that school for two weeks before I got there to guarantee him a seat so they can help their son. Right. But because their son hasn't struggled yet, they'd rather sit on the couch and watch TV. And instead of educating yourself a little bit, kind of associating um, and going home and having a real honest conversation. Hey, I heard the speaker tonight. Like, what was your thoughts? 
you know, and it's just that it's just that dialogue, right? And I and I again I I think when you when you talk to parents, when I talk to parents, and my mom was guilty of it too, when she found marijuana in my pocket when she did the laundry, or she smelt it in the car, or found open containers, caps under the seat, um, she the first the way she approached it was, who gave it to you? When did you do it? Did you drink and drive? Like, it was all external stuff. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, hey, Christopher, like, can you just can you just tell me, like, why you have to do this right now? Like, three years ago, you used to cry about it, and you were dead set against it because your dad. And now I'm finding his beer caps under my seat. Like, what's happening right now? Um, parents don't ask why because, again, they have to jump into the why. Yeah. And, and how, how do we, man, how do, how do we get past that? I mean, do you, do you see, again, I asked about how do you think we're doing in schools and stuff? How do you think we're doing with parents? Do you, do you see it getting better or is you know, that a tougher nut to crack? Some, I see it in some communities, right? But last week, I, this past week, I spoke in this, I, I had probably 3,600 kids total from this, from this town, um, and 3,600, I spoke to the middle school and I spoke to the high school and 3,600 total kids. And at the night event, I probably had 30 to 50 hmm. parents, you know, represented of 3,600. Um, I will say this, and I haven't seen it when I first started there were schools that made it mandatory if your child wanted to go to prom. So a parent had to come in and check the box if your daughter or son were going to be able to attend prom. They had to come listen to me speak. Or some schools would say, if your son or daughter is interested in winter sports, you have to show up to this. Um, but most schools and most communities and most superintendents don't have the you know, yeah, they don't have the to to lay that down that way. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, I think it's tough as a parent. If I try to put myself back, you know, before I got into recovery, you know, you. And I say this cautiously because I, I never want to accuse anybody of anything, you know. But mm. it, anytime you do something like that, you are turning the the spotlight on yourself a little bit, right? And you're, sure. you're forced to look at your own actions. And I think just as we talked about the culture in high school and the culture at college, there's a culture among parents now mm. about how, how it's okay to drink out. Al drinking alcohol is so accepted everywhere mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. even at nine year old baseball games, you know, there's yeah, parents with, it. there's parents with their yetis, you know, having drinks, watching the games. Yeah. It's um, crazy. But there's a lot of times it's more parents doing it than are not doing it. Yeah, so it can it's, be, especially, I mean, and it's also based off the community, right? I mean, I, I spoke at a community a couple of months ago where they tailgate like middle school football games. Like they have a huge tailgate set up for, to watch seventh graders play football. Um, you know, and I, and I, but the reality is I think, I think kids, they see that at a young age. Yeah. Like, my dad completely loosens up once he gets home and has a couple of glasses. 
you know, and, and there's some kids out there that will say, um, I like my dad better because he's just nicer. You know, he's, he's, he's friendly, he's funnier. Um, and so they, they identify at a very young age that, you know, their father needs alcohol in order to be, you know, loose and fun to play with his children. Um, so I think we're making progress. I do. Um, I think some communities are better than others. Um, and, and I think just like for me, right, which I find it wild, I'll go into speak and I'll never meet the superintendent and I won't meet the principal. Like, how do you allow someone in your building to speak in front of your children that you represent and not even meet the speaker just to kind of get a feel? And there's plenty of places I go to that the principal stays in their office and the superintendent never comes. That's that's surprising. I mean, they're they're responsible for those kids. You you think they would be responsible for every word that comes out of totally. your ma- mouth? You know? Yeah. Is there anything when you go into those schools or when you speak to the anything? Is there anything you can't say that you no. want to say? No, I don't. I I you know, there's been times I, you know, I call kids out for certain behavior. I'll say things. I. I I won't do it if, if they put restrictions on me. You know, if I walk in and say, well, you can't talk. I mean, the only thing is we do our research, our due diligence. Like, will I always kind of scout out the, the community that I'm going to? And if there's been tragedies, if there's been death, if there's been suicide, if there's been stuff like that, then you want to be sensitive to certain things, of course. Um, but we do our due diligence on that end to find out, like, okay, a, a student, you know, passed away in a drunk driving accident. We have to, we have to be aware of that. Um, and that's just the due diligence that we do on the on the front end, walking into schools. But I've never really had a principal or a superintendent say to me, "You can't say this," mm-hmm. because honestly, if he said that to me, I'd say I can't do this. Do you, uh, you, when I, when I saw you speak, you have that, it was like it was your first time speaking as far as, yeah. as far as the fire you mm. had when you, when you spoke, do you, you know, your motivation every day to continue this and all the work that you're doing in, in your own centers that you have, I mean, you're doing so much great work, obviously bringing endless awareness. Um, do you wake up every day now, like still looking forward to whoever it is that you're going to reach out to? I wake up ready. Yeah. I wake up ready. I mean, listen, I I said this, and it's kind of corny, right? But I don't care. Um, when I first got sober, I hated sleep because I loved being up. You know what I mean? Like, like life was so, it's so, like, I hate sleep because <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm crushing life. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sleeping. I can't crush anything. Like, I can't feel anything. Like, I want to be up and feeling this. So, you know, speaking is something that was unintentional, completely off my radar. Um, And I say this all the time. If there ever comes a time where I'm not nervous, anxious, fired up, I need to step out. And I'll, I'll step away at that time. Yeah. 
And what has changed for you in all the, in all the time that you've been doing it now? How many years sober now? 14 years sober. I've been speaking for 12. Okay. And what has changed? Have you, obviously, you know, you learn things, um, mm. you know, and ways to connect. And I, I, yeah. I have probably, you get better and better probably. Yeah. But overall that time where you're at now, like what's, what's the biggest thing that has changed you know, for you over that time? I think the biggest thing is because of my athletic background and, and, you know, from a very young age, you know, you're taught to watch your mistakes, you know, film, step in, do a film session, and you think you're really good, but then you watch the film and you're like, oh, I'm not that good. Um, you know, I've, I've been studying kind of what hits and what doesn't, you know, and, and, I, and I've, I've changed the messaging over the years, right? Like, it would be really easy for me if I walked in and just hit the button and told just my story. Because I've, you know, I've said it a million times, and and but I don't believe that that's enough, right? So I've had to adjust. Um, you know, self harm, kids hurting themselves was much more prevalent four or five years ago than it is today. You know, the amount of outreach from children um, was much greater on that side um, than it is today. So. You know, where five years ago, that was kind of a, a big part of how I communicated with kids and talked about it um, and shared stories. Um, it's still a part of it, but just not as much as it was five years ago. Um, you know, bullying isn't as prevalent to me as it once was. And just from the data, right? Like, I'm a huge just collecting data. Like, let's, let's see what the emails, you know, how many... Um, you know, are communicating what struggle. Um, and I have to be humbled enough to know, like, what I'm doing needs adjustment. So I adjust. The support you get from your wife and your kids, yeah. uh, you know, that they saw you through it um, and they're still t there today. I mean, what's, yeah. what's that for you? Oh, it's, it's, it's the greatest achievement of my life. Like, there's no better. Like, I mean, it's the, greatest, it's the greatest gift I've ever been given. It's the greatest gift I've been able to give, right? Recovery is the greatest gift I've ever received, and recovery is the greatest gift I've ever given away. And, and, and you know, my children have been given um, that gift. I've been the dad I wish I had. You know, I wish, you know, I became the dad that you know, um, I never wanted to be. And then I became the dad I wish I had. And, you know, that's all because of recovery. It's awesome. Chris, I know you got to no, run. I cannot talking to you. Hey, I can't thank you enough, obviously for yeah. what you did for me, for my days in rehab all the way to yeah, today. Yeah. I appreciate all of it. And, uh, I hope we get to talk again sometime. We'll chop it up again. Okay. Thanks for all everything, right, man. Well, thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please don't forget to rate and review before you move on. You can also go to my website, dancarity.com, for more talk on my blog and subscribe to my newsletter for updates on the podcast, more info on addiction and recovery, and everything else that my guests and I are up to.